This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We have five experts from different fields of the primary research on dealing with cancer. We're going to talk about the similarities and the differences of the fields they all know. These are all uh, five medical doctors. They're people whose work you probably have followed. Actually, I'm, I'm curious. We were discussing beforehand what kind of audience we'd have here. How many people just in this room have a medical degree of some kind? How many are involved in the bio business in some way? And how many have cancer as a focus of, his, of your work? So it's a, an obviously very well-informed audience. We're joined by many, many people who are going to be seeing us online. Over time, usually about a million people have downloaded these videos over the course of a year. So we'll try to, to give you our ambition over this next hour is to try to say from people who are leaders in differing fields of cancer research, what are the most promising uh, developments they are seeing? What are some of the challenges they have, both in the science and the funding and business models and public policy? The areas in which their, uh, their work overlaps, ways, some ways in which it might, uh, might differ. And finally, how we will think differently as informed uh, citizens about this challenge that, as we've heard through the previous uh, day's sessions, is, is so important. So I'll, start int- I'll introduce the panel briefly. If I gave their full criteria and backgrounds, that would be the whole hour. Also, each one of them could fill an hour or two. But I'll just briefly say, we have on the far, my far left in the pedal, Dr. Scott Lippman, who's the director of the Morse Cancer Center here at UCSD. He's a local San Diego guy from Grossmont High School. Um, I was, was from Redlands High School, which was a tennis rival of uh, yours, m- much <laughs> earlier than yours, but you went on, on a tennis scholarship to UC Irvine, right, before you got into the, your pioneering work in personalized medicine. We next have Dr. Uh, David Sadova from the City of Hope Medical Center. Many of you may know him from his lectures on, I think it's called The Great Courses, where you're talking, I really recommend seeing them after you check the video of this session for fundamentals of, of cell biology, what we know about cancer, what we don't know. He's worked at Claremont Colleges, uh, and, and uh, also a UCSD a PhD. We have Christopher, uh, sorry, we, we have uh, Christina Vori, who is the president and interim CEO at the Sanford Burnham Medical Research Institute, an active cancer researcher herself now, originally from, from Finland. We have Christopher Slapak, a Lilly Scholar and Senior VP of the Inclone Systems of Eli Lilly from, uh, from the Midwest, who's been doing a lot of his own research too. And finally, we have uh, Gregor, Gregor Sorensen, who is the CEO of Siemens Healthcare North America, former professor of radiology at a Harvard Medical School and a very active participant in the imaging business, which is so important in this field and which, uh, which Siemens plays such a, a role in. To mix things up, I'm going to ask my panelists each for a brief two or three minute overview of what in his or her particular field is most exciting and that they want to convey to you. I'm going to mix things up by not doing it in, uh, in, in this kind of order. I'm actually going to start with uh, Scott Lippman. So uh, you can tell us first, although we were, this, was, this is different from what we said two minutes ago, this is you know, real-time adaptation. Uh, <laughs> I can see we went through this whole order. And, uh, yes. So, um, well, I think the, um, the most exciting thing for me is, is the issue of um, personalized medicine, Precision medicine. Um, the whole field of oncology is going through a transformation, probably similar to what the internet went through in the early 90s. It's changing <coughs> completely. The way we um, defined cancer before was based on the site of origin, breast cancer, lung cancer, whatever. Now we're moving um, uh, away from that or to include that to defining cancers based on a molecular signature. 
genomics is just the beginning. There's proteomics, metabolomics, and so on, because we know that may be in a more important, um, more important information to direct therapy. So this is uh, changing the way we do trials, the, the, the changing the way we um, develop drugs to treat cancer. So it's a very exciting time, uh, uh, but it's going to be very challenging to, to identify these drivers. You've heard of some of them, for instance, the BRAF mutation, which was identified in melanoma and transformed that therapy. Uh, that therapy of that disease, you may not be as aware that the BRAF mutation occurs in other diseases. I've had patients with lung cancer that have that, and if you treat them with the BRAF inhibitor approved for melanoma, uh, you can see dramatic responses. So we're looking now at redefining uh, cancer um, based on pathways. Um, certainly the context and, and the site will be important. Um, and um, and it's, so it's, it's a very exciting uh, time, and, and uh, we'll see a lot of changes. The whole, the whole system now is undergoing a revolution. Uh, the, tri- the classic trial designs that we've all grown up with don't really apply here. Um, we're going for high-risk, high-gain types of studies. The, the trials we've done in the past to approve drugs for cancer, you've, you've heard can be studies of uh, thousands of people for 10, 20 years to um, targeting an improvement in survival of six weeks, for instance. I think those days are over. Now we can actually look into a tumor. We have the technology um, to identify what, makes, what drives these tumors, what makes them tick, what their Achilles tendon is, and then develop drugs to, uh, to inhibit that. So exciting time in personalized medicine. And thank you for that uh, admirable uh, response under pressure uh, uh, lead on to our discussion. Let me ha- have one brief follow-up here, which is that for lay audiences, even informed lay audiences, it's often very hard to gauge the time horizon we're talking about. We're talking about things two years from now, 50 years from now, uh, to the extent there are revolutionary changes as of roughly when. Yeah, that's a great question, and I should have made that point. This is not a vision that we have <clears throat> that in 5, 10, 20 years we'll get there. This is happening right now in the clinic. We are seeing patients that are coming in, that their disease is completely resistant, uh, the, treatment, the disease has filed, failed all treatments, we're doing genomic profiling, and if we identify a molecular genetic driver and use that drug, we're seeing dramatic responses. I mean, we've seen um, young people who have had their sort of farewell um, a party uh, where there's no reception, where there's nothing else that can be done, they come in dramatic responses. So it's happening now in the clinic. This is not something, uh, genomics is not something that we're hoping uh, will develop in several, in, in several years or 10 or 20 years, but we're just beginning. It's a long way to go. So Christina Vori, for your own work, your own personal work in cancer research and the work at Sanford Burnham, what is the most exciting or significant distillation of what you're doing and seeing? So I'd probably like to highlight maybe three things, and they get back to what uh, Scott already introduced to us. Uh, it's a really exciting era for cancer research. On one hand, we are making really great scientific advances in the molecular classification of diseases. Uh, to some 10 years ago, we thought that breast cancer is one disease. Probably know today that it's some 20 different types of diseases uh, with each of its own causes and hence probably its own treatments. Um, and thanks to the technological advances, we are getting to the point, as Scott outlined, we can take biopsies of tumors and do very detailed molecular level analysis thanks to technologies in uh, genomics developed right here in town by Life Technologies, Illumina, other companies. And our hope is that when we do that molecular diagnosis, we can then match a patient to the right drug and right treatment for that molecular signature. So at Sanford Burnham, uh, we work on 
three uh, what I think are really exciting areas of basic research, how the laboratory research can enable doctors to take better care of patients uh, uh, today and in the future. On one hand, we try to find ways to match those molecular signatures to the right drugs. That's an active uh, area of work for many, many uh, research cancer centers. We also make advances in a couple of other interesting areas. One is uh, a concept of tumor reoccurrence or cancer coming back, sometimes years after treatment. And what we now know is that uh, in every cancer, there is probably something what we call a cancer stem cell that originally causes that tumor to happen. And it turns out that it's probably that cancer stem cell that also may be the culprit why the cancer comes back after treatment. So you can think of this cancer stem cell or tumor-initiating cell sort of as a queen in a beehive. If you don't destroy that queen... Uh, the beehive keeps coming back. And it is that cell that we need to find in cancers and take it out. We're also making advances in understanding the process of metastasis, the spread of the cancer in the body. As you may know, in solid tumors, about 90% of cancer deaths are due to spread of the tumor, some other parts in the body outside of its primary location. What we now know is that uh, cancer spread actually takes place very early in the process of tumor formation. Uh, cancer cell spreads, remains dormant in other parts of the body, and sometimes a year later can get reactivated. So again, what we have to do is to find those cells, what activates them, and how we can destroy them later. Great. Thank you. And I actually have a master plan of the order I'm following here, which I'll try to reveal as, as it goes on. I'd like to ask uh, Christopher Slapak now about the work you're doing with, with Imclone and how that, what is most important to know about that. Right. So just to pick up on the thread, the genomics revolution, uh, as it's been applied to cancer, has really changed not only the understanding of the elucidation of the pathogenesis of the disease, the classification, but also as we begin to design new therapeutics for it. I have the privilege of, of leading the early development group for Lilly and Imclone. We have a portfolio of roughly two dozen molecules in development for cancer. And these, uh, our group partners with their discovery scientists, either out of the Imclone research laboratories or the Indianapolis-based, or here in San Diego we have group as well, to, to, to start the first human data set, the first in man studies, first in human studies, then to go on to develop data sets and clinical trials in the early phases of, of efficacy-directed trials. If you look at the past decade, the biggest advances have come from small molecule uh, inhibitors, so-called targeted therapy, as well as protein-based biologics, um, monoclonal antibodies. Advances in both our, our, our ability to do chemistry and protein engineering and the understanding of the molecular pathogenesis, there are so many targets now to potentially pick from. I think that's one of the challenges we have in industry. What are the best targets? Because we can either likely design a protein-based therapeutic or a small molecule inhibitor to one of those targets. You can't do everything. There's not unlimited resources, so you must make choices. You must kind of prioritize what you think are the most likely targets to ultimately impact this very difficult disease. And then we must design a series of clinical trials to really answer that question in patients with cancer. So that's our challenge, but I think we have enormous tools and technology that have come to bear, including next-gen sequencing, including you know, it, you know, advanced diagnostics to really select patients who are most likely to benefit to answer that question quickly 
and really focus our resources on molecules we think that are ultimately going to make it and benefit patients. So it's a great time. We're trying to use all the technology and knowledge out there to, to get to decisions quickly so we can advance the most important molecules ultimately to get to the largest number. Great. Thank you. That's now Gregory Sorensen to talk about the, the imagery and sort of um, real-world uh, machinery aspects of all this. What, what, is, what should we know about the way that, that uh, imaging and other sort of uh, physical devices are changing cancer work? Well, I think what we're seeing, uh, Jim, is an increased sense of the value of knowing mm-hmm. about your cancer. Uh, and I would put that into a couple of different buckets. Uh, certainly, imaging now and other tools are enabling us to know whether or not patients actually have cancer. So, for example, the National Lung Cancer Screening Trials showed that if you're a smoker or a former smoker and you have a CT scan of your lungs and you find cancer at an early enough stage, uh, those patients who are screened have a 20% reduction in their cancer mortality, which in context is four times or, or more bigger than all of the advances in lung cancer treatment in the last 20 years. So it's a huge, huge impact by knowing uh, what, if you've got cancer or not. Uh, then I know from my own experience with patients that there's tremendous tension about knowing, well, what's the status of my cancer? Where is it? Is it in my body? Is it everywhere? There's no more sort of sense of, of uh, dis-ease, if you will, as when you've got, first got the diagnosis and then trying to understand, well, how bad is it? Is it spread everywhere? Is it local? Is it treatable? What's going to happen to me? I mean, and, and so knowing that uh, by imaging tests or other tests can be very valuable. Uh, and then there's a, a, a sense of knowing, is my cancer responding? We know so many patients get treated with drugs that don't work for them. Um, and if we can enable personalized medicine by actually knowing what's happening to the cancer, what its types are, uh, what its uh, uh, features are, and then whether or not the drug is working. Um, all of that, I think, put together says uh, we as a system, I think, need to figure out ways to incentivize early and efficient diagnosis. Um, because if you go, for, go off on the wrong diagnosis, you do a lot of treatment that never really helps anyone. The most wasted healthcare dollar, and I know everybody talks a lot about cost these days, but the most wasted dollar is the one that you never need to spend because you didn't have the right diagnosis. Great, thank you. And now uh, in the wrap-up overview mode, uh, this is in, in punishment or in recognition for having done all these great courses videos <laughs> over the years of putting, putting things in perspective. We're going to have uh, Dr. David Sadova say what else, how you would the work you're most uh, interested in that you do personally and how you would draw together some of the comments from your, uh, your fellow panelists. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> Anytime. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a laboratory scientist. I go in the lab and I do things. Um, and the cancer I work on is called small cell lung cancer. That's different from large cell lung cancer. I think you can understand well, some of them have small and some have large cells. But really, we can classify it as a special type of cell. It's called a neuroendocrine cell. This is a very difficult tumor. Uh, It's a tumor for which we have a molecular biography, but it's not clear as to what the targets for therapy are going to be. So the treatment for this tumor is the same as it's been for the last 30 years, and the prognosis is dismal. Here's what happens. Patient comes in and, through various ways, is diagnosed with this small cell lung cancer. Um, Typically, the tumor is going to be treated with a cocktail of drugs that are the same drugs that it's been treated for the last 30 years at least. Uh, these are called toxic drugs. They're toxic both to the cells and, sadly, to the patient. The tumor exquisitely responds. It's a fantastic response, both in the laboratory and in the patient, to these drugs. The tumors shrink, and sometimes the tumor will go into remission. You can't see any tumor cells, but it's lurking there. 
there are some cells somewhere in the body. And months to, sadly, a year or two at the most after initial treatment and initial response, it roars back. And this time, if you try the same drugs on it, it doesn't work anymore. It's resistant. And many of you have heard of insects that are resistant to pesticides. These are tumors resistant to chemotherapy. Um, now, at that point, what we'd like to have is a molecular biography, as my colleagues have described, of the tumor that would say, let's try this next drug and see if we can target that drug that's unique to this, uh, this, the target unique to this particular tumor. There isn't one for small cell lung cancer. So the prognosis is pretty dismal. People don't usually live beyond two years to three years after diagnosis. Some people live longer, but not very long at all. So what am I trying to do in the lab? I'll get cells or biopsy tissues from patients, and I'll try things to overcome resistance. Um, and it's a kind of classical approach of pharmacology, drug research, to try to overcome resistance. And I'm trying to use things that, are, that, that I think are going to work. But I've done everything, uh, to, including collaborating, collaborating with a Chinese medicine doctor. I, look, I studied a herb that is used widely in traditional medicine to treat uh, uh, lung cancer in traditional medicines. And uh, you won't believe this, but at the molecular level, the cells responded the same way as they do to chemotherapy. So we're trying things that, that may work to overcome resistance. Is this a, an exciting new advance? I don't think so. I think the optimism is going to come when we know more about the molecular biography of this tumor. But right now, we're stuck with trying molecules and seeing whether they will work or not based on educated guesses. Thank you. So I deliberately asked all of you to uh, a sort of positive-toned question to begin with of what's most exciting in, in what you're seeing, and, and you, you uh, informed us admirably about that. I'm going to ask now a question where I don't assume, I don't know whether there's a positive or negative answer. Um, as a reporter, when I talk to people in other fields of basic research in the U.S., often they say the funding is stop and start. Uh, we could be doing so much more if we had you know, this kind of, of guarantee or underwriting. How should... Americans in the world feel about the basic <coughs> ecology of the cancer research system. Is cancer research sort of doing as much as it could given the fundamental limits of the disease and of science, or are there some frustrations that you all share as, oh, if only this were different, then we could do so much more? Yeah. Uh, anybody who would like to, to answer that? Well, I will defer to my academic colleagues. This is a very difficult time, yeah. certainly in academic medicine, to maintain funding for basic research. The pharmaceutical industry is absolutely dependent upon good relationships with major cancer centers, academic networks, and other patients, other uh, clinical trial uh, networks to, to really test compounds in a proper setting. So clearly all the major academic centers are suffering right now from cuts in funding, and it affects our ability to do clinical trials and ultimately to compounds out to patients. So although the pharmaceutical industry is viewed as a deep pocket, if you will, because they've been uh, traditionally financially successful, I think our ability to partner with academic and medical centers, it's, it's seriously been undermined, but I'll defer to my colleagues to yeah, comment yes. further. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great point. This is, the, um, this is the worst time to put the brakes on, the, uh, on this field because, as I mentioned, we're, we're going through a very exciting, transformative period, but it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of resources. Um, and so it is very difficult. The, the, the cuts at the NIH level are very, very difficult to deal with, particularly, I mean, at, at the Morse Cancer Center, we're very successful in getting NIH grants. So, so uh, getting a lot of grants, you're, you're, you're hurt even more as these cuts go down. Uh, so it's, it's a real problem. 
But I want to pick up on what you said about the academe industry yeah. partnerships. I do think that is a major area we need to go. In fact, um, the NCI advisory group has recommended that in a formal report about two years ago uh, to form academe industry partnerships to, um, to develop uh, drugs quicker. And this is a major initiative at the Morris Cancer Center. We're actually um, working with Sanford Burnham at Salk. Yeah, we've, we've formed a, uh, an affiliation uh, called... The, where it turns out that they're... We're an NCI-designated conference at Cancer Center. We, we, we uh, have clinical uh, care. There are about 40 in the country, and there are actually seven NCI-designated, the highest level of, of recognition, basic science cancer centers. Two of them are right here in San Diego, Salk and Burnham, within two miles. So we've actually formed a formal affiliation. We're working together to try to um, take advantage and leverage resources in a, in a difficult time to help patients. Uh, and we're actually working through that network to uh, interact and partner with, um, with biotech. You know, this is the second largest life science uh, cluster mm-hmm. in the country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have an incredible biomedical environment, and I think it's especially in this uh, uh, period of excitement and, and promise um, uh, to, to leverage resources across uh, these various uh, centers and, uh, uh, and industry. Yes. Uh, I would really like to echo what, uh, what Scott has said. I think the... Um, the U.S. government, NIH, National Cancer Institute, have been major drivers for cancer research in, in the world, really. And um, I think, as we all know, we are facing really challenging times in that funding right now. The key is to continue to leverage resources, to collaborate within academia, with, uh, with the industry. Um, you know, I think uh, Sid, in the, his Skype interview, men- mentioned, I think, Stand Up to Cancer. That is one effort, how one puts really scientists from all over the nation together, really tackle unmet medical needs in the area of cancer, and I think that's the way to go. And, and just to follow up on this, there are some fields of basic research where the scientists say they are being really seriously hampered by, by uh, limits in federal funding, spending. Are the NIH reductions, are they a serious limit on what you're doing, or are they a sort of annoyance, uh, in the annoyance um, field, annoyance category? I, I would say that we ought to double the NIH budget again. Mm-hmm. You know, we did yeah. that uh, right. uh, more than a decade ago. It was a brilliant move. It, it drew people to America in a way that enabled science, uh, and it uh, gave hope to a lot of researchers that they had a future, and, that, and it attracted many of the yeah. brightest minds. It, it's... Um, May not be possible in today's toxic political climate, but it's an idea that I think it's it's time to reconsider. You know, last uh, uh, I've been doing some work in Washington, trying to help them to uh, think clearly. Uh, <laughs> Good luck. And, uh, <laughs> it's my UCSD yeah, training. Boy, talk about your uh, long-term research project. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and I uh, last uh, there are two major conferences in cancer in this country. One is for the cancer researchers. It's called the American Association of Cancer Researchers, held every April. And there are about 15,000 people there, all cancer researchers, and 5,000 presentations, imagine. Uh, it's a huge effort. And the other one is usually held in Chicago almost always. It's the American Society of Clinical Oncology. It's held in June. And equivalent numbers. And there's not as much overlap as you would think. It's amazing. Uh, so there are, we're dealing now with 25 or 30,000 individuals who are dedicating their lives to cancer research. And I thought it would be interesting if I snuck in five senior congressional aides to the American Association of Cancer Research, where I was presenting a paper last year, and I didn't want them to see my paper, but this was last uh, April, and we snuck in early in the morning, and I walked them around, and I showed them the magnitude of cancer research, and I showed them the reality of cancer research. That is, behind all the numbers and the printouts that the people in Washington are are getting and the policymakers uh, tossing around a million here and a million there, um, are real people dedicating their lives to this, to this disease. 
And I thought it was very, for these people, it was very informative yeah. for them. <coughs> and, and did they act any differently after that, from what you could tell? <laughs> uh, several of them have told me since that they remember that, uh, that, that, that it put a, a start. face... <laughs> It put a face. It put a face onto it. Yeah. I must say that our national organizations are very good at uh, uh, at trying to to explain to our, our legislators, who are the people really to make the decisions uh, about funding, uh, what the value of cancer research is. Uh, I think there is enormous public um, goodwill toward cancer research as well. Um, so yeah. I'm I'm optimistic. Yeah. Um, I would like to see the NIH budget. <laughs> Uh, doubled. Yes. Yeah. So, it, you know, and it's just to pick up on that, it's these exact large societies that are sending out um, messaging that's um, pretty alarming uh, about trying to, um, t- to lobby and get um, to, to work through uh, our local states to get NIH funding up. It's a serious problem. Uh, I don't know if you want to say crisis, but it's heading that way. Um, and in fact, I was at a, a meeting, uh, AACI, a meeting um, a few days ago uh, in Washington. That's the Association for the NCI-funded cancer centers. And uh, Kathleen Sebelius spoke at that. Um, actually, was supposed to speak on Tuesday, yeah. but they moved it to Monday uh, because they thought there might be a shutdown. And they were right. Anyway, so she came, and she actually talked about this. And the concern that she said is that we may lose the talent that we have in this country to go to other countries if we don't uh, do something. So it's... You know, I'd just like to pick up on Dr. Mukherjee's thing. This is, this is our problem. Everyone in this room, everyone who lives uh, in this country, this, we have to own this and we have to, make, you know, we have to push the government to, uh, to increase funding, particularly in cancer, which is uh, really transforming. And so I, I think I know the, what the answer to this will be, but I have to ask, would all of you be in favor of doubling the NIH budget? And that, would that be a, a widely held view within, within your field? Uh, on the, the factor of political storytelling, this, this actually meshes what you're saying. The Atlantic held an event about six months ago, which I won't give any details about, but one of the prominent speakers was a very, very well-known conservative legislator. You see this person on the news all the time. And the interviewer asked this person, uh, he was against spending in all fields except um, medical research for, for NIH, and why was that? And he said, with no self-consciousness, oh, we have a family history of this disease. So it, 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 you can look it up. Uh, so it, it, it's, I think that the fact that there is a sort of family history that we all are going to be involved in these, these diseases is, uh, is very important. Let me now ask you something which goes a little bit against the grain of the thing you've been saying, but I think it would be on an audience's mind. You've been talking about all the fine distinctions we have to make about different kinds of cancer, moving beyond thinking, oh, just it's this organ, but it should be this, this causation. From the public's point of view, nonetheless, at what pace do you foresee different kinds of diseases seeming more curable or manageable? Five years from now, is there a certain kind of widespread cancer that you think will be more manageable now, or it will all be on the individual sort of person-by-person level, do you think? Is there a category of cancer we'll soon start thinking as a chronic disease? You know, it's a little hard to predict. Look at where melanoma was just a few Mm -hmm. years ago. It was considered, it was absolutely one of the most refractory diseases in the advanced state, and boom, molecular pathogenesis, we have new targeted agents, now we have immunotherapy that looks incredibly exciting. It's a little difficult to predict, and we have to understand cancer is hundreds of diseases as we're doing right. the molecular pathogenesis, it's not one disease. So across the spectrum, I think there's advances being made, and sometimes out of the blue, you know, we have incredible advances in a disease that really looked 
really very hopeless in the advanced setting. So. Yes. So I think um, it's probably fair to say that there might be two types of cancers, sort of a stupid cancers and smart cancers. <laughs> and um, the stupid ones are those that have very few changes or mutations in them. And we can treat them successfully. I think uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia is one of the success stories where we know the driver for that disease and get some remarkable uh, results for treatment. Uh, that cancer tries to change uh, in response to treatment, but we can still keep up the pace with it most of the time. And then we have um, another extreme of cancer that's, I think, very smart from the point of view that if it wants to survive, it finds ways to change and can have thousands of mutations. Unfortunately, lung cancers tend to be in that bucket. So we need to really find, I think, um, uh, ways of t treating the cancers, the stupid and the smart ones, and then really understand the smart ones. Why is it that they change so much? Is there something that we can address that prevents them from changing uh, in response to treatment and uh, coming resistant, as, as was pointed out earlier? Yeah. So, are there any other answers on this question? I have another one. You are experts in your field, but you spend much of your life dealing with even the, the informed lay public. What do you find yourself having to explain most often to non-experts? What's the main difference in worldview between people whose research is in cancer and the rest of us, the thing that you wish that we understood? I think that many people in the lay public believe cancer is a single disease. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very common misconception. Um, I think people are also very hung up on the causes of cancer. Uh, and this is a field that I think really needs a lot more attention than it's getting now. Um, everyone who gets cancer wants to know why they got it. Uh, if you're a smoker, that's easy, um, probably. <laughs> Um, but for many cancers, it's quite difficult to tell uh, why you got the cancer. Um, sometimes there's just spontaneous changes in, in the genetic material because we're chemistry. We're just made of chemicals that aren't perfect. Um, but other times, it's from something from the outside. Um, but people really wonder about the causes of cancer, and it's hard to explain to them that, that there's a gap of our knowledge there. So those are the two things. Yes. I'd say that, that there's still a lot of mystery around mm -hmm. cancer for a lot of people. One of the reasons that we're so excited about supporting Sid's book being made into a documentary to make it more accessible is there's still a lot of fear and questions in people's minds. And I think demystifying it, like his book does, for those who have the time to read right. a 600-page book, or I think the high school students who will see Ken Burns' documentary, they'll start to understand this is, uh, it is a complex disease, but it's one in which we have uh, ways to attack. We have, uh, we're not powerless in the face of it. And there's, um, there's hope, there's reason for hope for it. Yeah. So I would say it's, it's both the expense and the time it takes to develop new drugs. I came from an academic background to join industry, and I was absolutely amazed at the resources it takes to move a molecule from the bench into the clinic to an approved agent. Independent organizations like, like the Tufts Center in Boston that study this, you know, have estimated new drugs cost a billion dollars, one to two billion dollars. I mean, that's no joke. I mean, that's, in, in some regards, that's not sustainable. Where do you go to the next level? Two to four billion for a new drug? So I think the current expense and the time, seven to ten years, um, would be, you know, not unheard of, not average. And, you know, it's, it's just a very time-consuming, expensive process uh, to really engard that you are delivering only efficacious and safe drugs to the general population. So I think it's, it's, it's a problem. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just going to ask one or two more questions before I turn it over to, to the, the, the panel here, because I know you all have 
uh, yours, A, an understanding by some members of the informed but non-expert lay public is that as other preventable causes of death are eliminated, infectious disease, accidents, or whatever, more and more you have a world in which everybody eventually gets cancer. Is that, is if, if you live long enough, you get some kind of, of, of uh, mutation that will cause a cancer. Is that, is that a understanding shared in your world, and what are the implications if so? If we all sort of survive the saber-toothed tigers of yesteryear and influenza and all the rest, and people live to be their 70s and 80s and 90s, how do we think about a world where most people expect to get some kind of cancer? Well, I think the key is to work towards a... a solution or a situation where we understand that cancer might be a very common disease mm-hmm. in one, one way, but we would like to have the cancer to be a disease that you can live with, not to die from. Uh, we have made similar advances, I think, in the cardiovascular field yeah. uh, and can manage really the diseases. And that in some ways might be the more realistic goal rather than finding this silver bullet, the magic bullet that is cure for all and really eliminates cancer altogether. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree completely with that. I mean, I, we, we will have some cures of some subtypes, but my belief uh, and my hope is that we can convert most cancers into chronic diseases mm-hmm. like heart disease, high blood, sh- blood pressure, and so on. Um, and uh, I think that's a realistic goal um, going forward. Yeah. The other big picture final question I'll ask you is one of the major, major crises for American medicine, as you know, is simply its cost. And the innovations you're working on, do they continue the ramping up in the expense of medical care, or do any of them hold the prospect of reducing that? So I brought a gizmo to show us (laughs) after the earlier thing. One of the things we introduced this year was a cordless ultrasound, Mm -hmm. where this is the ultrasound, and it shows up on your screen. Mm -hmm. And while it's expensive, it reduces... uh, infection or complications from doing procedures without mm. ultrasound guidance. And it's one mm. of those things that now um, independent societies say, well, you shouldn't put a central line in without ultrasound guidance. So it's one of these short-term uh, blips in expense that cuts the expense long-term. And I think one of the hopes of healthcare reform is that you'll reward systems for making those kinds of investments. And there is some hope that we're starting to shift to these long-term um, accounting horizons so that uh, systems get paid for doing the right thing. In the past, they didn't want to spend the money because they didn't get the savings. And so uh, the innovation in even the business model, I think, is starting to happen. And that's a really positive sign. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, in when you discuss personalized medicine and targeted drugs and the expense, there's this sense that we can't afford this field, even though it helps people. And, and um, you know, I, 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 I disagree, and we're looking into this in a business model, because if you look at it, if you treat all of lung cancer with the same drugs, which we do, mm-hmm. treating 90% of the people who get sick, the drugs may be less expensive, it doesn't help them, mm-hmm. versus identifying the 4% with a certain um, alteration that, uh, with, and treating with a more expensive drug, I think we're looking at those kinds of models. But I think a lot of people public and, other, and doctors that aren't doing this, the knee-jerk reaction is it's expensive drug, we can't afford it. But the whole idea is you're just treating uh, uh, individual people. Also, I think that we have to, and it made me think of this when you talked about the technology. I mean, the way that technology is advancing is if we can get this into the clinic quicker, it will save mm-hmm. a cost and so on. For instance, we didn't talk about this, but from my view, one of the most exciting transformative events in cancer is being able to do what's called liquid biopsies. Mm-hmm. sort of convert solid tumors into, into hemologic tumors where there have been major advances by monitoring free DNA in the blood, circulating tumor mm-hmm. cells. The technology is getting rapid. Even here in San Diego, a lot of work. 
And so it's not uh, out of the realm of thinking that uh, in the not distant future, people walk around and they'll have samples. And if, uh, if a mutation appears, resistance mutation, they don't even have to come in. It'll pick it up. It'll get remotely trans- translated. So I think the technology can really help us drive this down if we can get it into uh, the clinic. And in, in this region, the technology with Qualcomm and so on is so strong that I think we can do it. I, th- I think the key is really in the uh, some pure cost perspective as I think quality of life perspective. I think the key is really uh, prevention, early det- detection. This is the absolute best way in the cancer field. But um, then wanting to uh, comment a little bit what Scott said, a major, major cost is that we are treating patients uh, with expensive drugs and we know probably that these drugs will not work. Mm-hmm. We exactly. just don't have any yeah. better options available. So the cost of that treatment is tremendous. Uh, the cost of uh, life, of working days, uh, toxicity, side effects, is again tremendous. And that is a very big burden um, cost-wise. And I think it's really up to us to find the ways to find the patients who will benefit from certain type of treatment, also find the patients that we can't and don't want to treat with certain type of medicine. I think there's going to yeah. be a big issue going forward um, with translating a lot of what goes on in academic centers to community oncology. It was mentioned last night that 80% of cancer patients are treated not at an academic medical center, but the model in America is it's diffuse. That is, there are many community cancer centers. And the treatment is very different in those community-based centers. Uh, it's not as focused. It's much more traditional. Um, and it's not as efficient in terms of use of, of resources. Um, and uh, hopefully, uh, and, and this, as, we, as we move forward, uh, the doctors out there in the community will become more informed about evidence-based medicine, mm. uh, which, is a, which is really, it's a, not only a buzzword, but it's a reality. Yes, before, yes. Before just to make a question, quick yeah. point on, on that and picking up on uh, Sid Mukherjee's comment about the percentage of people that go on trials, this is mm-hmm. a huge problem. If you look at pediatrics, it's 80%, huh. very high percentage of, of children with cancer go on trials, and there have been major advances there. This 10 to, to 15% of uh, adults with cancer that go on is, is a real problem, uh, it, particularly when it's known um, that, that people that go on trials actually do better. Yeah. So we need to somehow, as a, as a society, get that message across and really speed things up. Okay. So questions. If you raise your hand, a microphone will come to you. Uh, so, so, yes, this lady back here, start off. And actually, why don't microphone bearers just find the next person? So uh, I'll, I'll call wherever the microphone goes. Yes. Hi, I'm Wanding. I had a question um, for Scott from one of your opening statements about clinical trials. How do you envision future gener- uh, clinical trials um, being changed from from how they're doing, how clinical trials are run now, yeah. the traditional model? Because I think that's going to change. And how do you envision that? Yeah, it's a very good question. And. Um, I don't know that anyone knows the answer. I don't know the answer, but to give you an idea, you, you may have heard this phrase, N of one. There's actually a company, N of one. Uh, there's the NCI is taking this on, the FDA. The concept there is that if you, if you uh, uh, see a patient and the tumor doesn't respond to anything, you do genomics, you find a, a driver mutation that you know is driving that tumor, you show it in the lab, and you give a drug that inhibits that, and the tumor melts. And these responses can be dramatic. How many patients do you need to treat with that to know that you've, you've got a good drug? Uh, to give them, and how do, you, how do you do that? I mean, one patient, two patients, three patients. The standard way we develop drugs in the past has been to do phase one and broad, unselected patients, then phase two and 50 and more patients, and phase three. Um, you know, I think you're going to need to do those studies for safety and others, but it, it shouldn't take that long and that many patients to know that you have a drug that can help patients now get that to them, and particularly if there's nothing uh, else, and then go on to refine the development of the drug and dose. 
so that's what I mean by changing the trial uh, designs. Doing selection in the earliest phase. We, we do it at, um, uh, at Moore's. We actually, in the earliest phase of drug development now, we're doing genomics and, and we're enriching certain uh, drugs and certain pathways. So we're not doing it just randomly based on, um, based on a refractory tumor. We're actually looking at mm -hmm. genomics in the earliest phase because patients are benefiting there. Long way to go. So uh, it's, um, there's, not a lot of, there's a lot of debate about this. We know it, I think the one thing everyone agrees with, I hope, is we have to change the trial design. The whole paradigm has yeah. to change. Yeah. That we agree on. Which way? There's a lot of debate. So who has a microphone? So the microphone is back here. Yes. Yes. Good, uh, good morning. I'm Catherine Phillips at the University of California, San Francisco. And we work on taking personalized medicine and figuring out how to improve patient outcomes. So I'm a health economist, and we're looking at sequencing technologies. Now, they're very exciting in terms of what they can do, but there's a lot of concern regarding how we're going to deal with the huge amount of information that we get sequencing. Because when you sequence a tumor, you frequently need to sequence the individual as well in order to understand what the tumor sequencing means. And so it provides a huge amount of information. It's not $1,000, which people tend to believe. Payers are going, oh, my God, we're going to have to pay for this. Clinicians are going, oh, my God, how do I interpret so, all the information? Can you bring this to, so, to its question? So to its question is, how do you see us dealing with the challenges of using sequencing going forward? And do you see that occurring soon, or is it going to take a while? I can start it off. I'm sure a lot of people have comments. So it's interesting, the cost. The cost, I think, won't be an issue. Um, I just heard last night that, uh, that the president of um, Illumina said that it, in, within three years or so, they'll be able to sequence the entire genome for $500. So it's, it's coming down dramatically. So I think the cost is going to keep coming down, which will mean, to get at your real issue, from my point of view, is what are we going to do with those information? I mean, people are walking in. They, they can get direct-to-consumer um, genomics and walking in with huge uh, data sheets. That's really the big issue. Um, and, you know, I mentioned BRAF mutations and some of the others, which are pretty well defined. You can look for it, you can find it, it's easy, it's a driver, and you can treat. Um, but I think most of cancer, particularly solid cancer, is not going to be that situation. It's going to be very, compli very complicated genomic patterns uh, that, are, that you can't just look at a mutation and say, this is it. You need a whole field of bioinformatics, very high level. This is beyond statistics, specially trained people that can look at, you know, all the stars in the galaxy and come up with patterns. Very complicated. We have a very strong program, actually, in the Mesa, at the Vent, <coughs> at, uh, at our place at Moore's, and with Cytoscape. We're actually taking this on. So I'll say where we, where we want to go with this, and this is a, a, you know, hopefully not too much of a dream, but to make it uh, the most practical is if we could link and share data across all the genomics, really across the world, so that we could actually look at patterns and look at outcomes. So you look at these complicated genomic patterns, and you see how patients do with certain, certain drugs. So a doctor in the clinic can search that database and say, boy, th this is the pattern, and there were four patients in Australia, two in Brazil, and they responded, that kind of thing. That's going to take a little bit of time to get to, but we're thinking about doing that now because it is a huge challenge. The last thing I'll say is that as doctors, and I've been doing this for a long time, we're not trained in this kind of biology. You either go into the lab, or you become a, a clinical person, or there's some that do physician scientists. Now, I recommend all doctors spend time in the laboratory, whether or not they want to do that for a living, because you have to understand the biology enough 
yourself and then to be able to, to tell patients about it. So there's a huge transition even at the front lines of the clinics with doctors understanding how to do this and then reflecting to patients. So a lot of challenges. Some brief follow-ups here? Yes. yes. Sure. So yeah. I, I think your question was really about two things. One is the cost and uh, that was already addressed. We hope certainly the cost of genome sequencing to go down. But the other is the complexity of the data. Uh, how does a treating doctor practically use this data? And I think where we are really heading is that it's not an individual doctor anymore taking care of a patient, but we need to have teams of uh, individuals, a tumor board that brings expertise from the clinical medicine, the geneticists, bioinformatics, informatics people who interpret data. And it will be the consensus recommendation and decision by this team of experts, really, that uh, end up making recommendations how to, how to make uh, the genomic data actionable and what is the drug for, of choice for this very specific patient. Uh, so, so uh, microphone on this side. Yes. Hi, uh, Rob McRae. And um, so I'm going to ask you a policy question. I've been struggling. All of you agree that we should double cancer research. And I'm thinking, where would NIH move the dollars from to double cancer research? And maybe is the solution to move it from health care with ineffective cancer therapies, something we all agree on, and look for the uh, additional funding there? Who has a view on that? <laughs> you know, it's, it, I, I'll speak up. I think it's, it's very true that we spend a lot of money on ineffective cancer therapies. Um, and there's been tremendous work trying to identify who would benefit and who would not benefit from a given therapy. I went on an NCI panel a couple of years ago looking at that. And at the end of the two-day session, trying to identify biomarkers that would predict who would respond to, at the time, bevacizumab, which was then the most expensive drug, um, the physicians basically said, look, unless you can tell me with more than 99% certainty that this drug won't work, I feel ethically obligated to give it to my patient. They've got no other options. And even though it's $10,000 a month, I've got to do it. And I think we're in a, we're in a world where um, we don't really ethically feel like we can say no to certain things. Uh, and, and, of course, that's a mythical world. Uh, because we don't have the resources to keep doing that. But it's less about how do we make policy decisions about where do we do things and more about how do we start having hard conversations with ourselves about the limits. And, and as one of the earlier speakers said, we don't seem to pay for our own health care. And so that puts all kinds of weird incent- misincentives into the marketplace. Yeah, yeah I, exactly. I think at a societal level, it's easy to say that at an individual patient level, that's almost impossible to do. And you look at where the majority of our health care costs, they go to end-of-life care across all diseases, not just cancer. So I don't think we should single out cancer. But yeah. yes. Before I go to the, uh, the, the upper tier, there's a lowbrow parallelist in the, the publishing world. Everybody knows that half of all advertising is wasted. Nobody knows which half. That's how we say in business. Uh, yes, up, up there, upstairs. Um, my name is Mary Ann Nice, and I'm a nursing consultant. And I have a question. Um, I'm very connected with the lay population um, through friends and family, actually, with you know various cancer incidents. And although the discussion always goes to what can I do pharmacologically for my cancer in looking at molecular structures, et cetera, the conversation always goes to alternative integrative complementary measures as well. What can I do? Do I need to be looking at my diet in terms of alkalinity versus acidity, looking at animal-based diets versus plant-based diets? Um, what, what can be done? Is, is dehydration a part of, of what's going on with my problem? And, and so I'm just wondering in terms of kind of where alternative impl- um, complementary and integrative medicine plays in in terms of the treatment, not as an either-or right. kind of thing, but 
together joining that. Yes. Almost Thank all you. cancer patients do some sort of alternative medicine. Now, you have to define that very broadly, and the way they define it in government circles is and that includes prayer. Uh, it includes a lot of things, but it also includes herbs and other things. Um, Got to be careful about what's done. Uh, and one of the good things at NIH was they set up, uh, National Institutes of Health set up a, a, a institute for complementary and alternative medicine. Uh, it gets uh, oh, over $100 million a year in funding, um, and they do actually research on a number of the, the things that you have actually mentioned, um, and the research gets published, and they try to evaluate whether these, these, uh, these things will work or not. Um, it's, it's, a, it's very difficult when you have cancer because you're, you're faced with a very dramatic life-threatening disease, and, of course, it's natural for people to look up the Internet and, and, and say, oh, there's this herb or there's a guy in Texas or whatever. Um, I think that uh, it's up to, it's up to oncologists and physicians, the medical community, to use evidence-based medicine again and say there is evidence for this, there is evidence against this, or there is no evidence at all. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a believer in different types of alternative medicine. I, I didn't used to be, but um, now that um, we're taking this, I mean, I think the key thing is we want to do the same evidence-based um, work to prove it for people as we do with other kinds of uh, drugs. And to give you an example, there's some recent work um, from Liz Blackburn at, at UC San Francisco, won the Nobel Prize for her work in uh, telomeres, that actually shows uh, in the setting of stress, chronic stress um, uh, and psychosocial stress, that if you can reduce that, in a very uh, rigorous way, your telomeres become longer, and short telomeres are associated with cancer, heart disease, and aging. So I think that um, I think there's a lot there. We just need to study these kinds of things in the same way. There are a lot more questions. We have time just for one, which will be over here. Uh, yes, my question was: uh, prior to discovery of some malignancy, is there uh, a preventive uh, procedure that can be undertaken uh, to yeah. predict? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, there, there are, and there are many examples. Um, um, one of the most dramatic um, uh, effects uh, of uh, advances in cancer uh, treatment, cancer control, has been um, the pap smear and, um, and the cervical splation, treating um, patients um, uh, that way. So identifying pre-malignant lesions and treating them, same things with colorectal adenomas, which aren't cancer. Colonoscopy reduces mortality. I mean, there, there are a lot of examples, and I think what you were getting at in addition is that we can take these genomic molecular uh, uh, texts to determine which of these pre-malignant lesions really are at risk to go. Many, many of them will just go away or never progress to cancer. So moving the genomics earlier in early cancer and pre-malignancy to help define which you need to treat in which ways is a, is a very active area. Good question. Yeah, I would, yeah, yeah. the BRCA genes, for example, yeah. and right. genomic markers. Right. Um, so we're beginning to elucidate them. There are not a lot of them. But. So the test of a panel like this is that when it's over, you, knew some th- you know some things you didn't know an hour earlier, and there's a lot more that you want to know. I think by that standard, this has been a tremendous success. Please join me in thanking our panelists. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.